If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 54. Last week we left off at Psalm 54. And I was speaking in the Life of David series on the victory of faith and worship. And I guess you could call this part two, or we might just call it today the victory of worship. Because we talked primarily about the victory of faith last time. And it had to do with what David is experiencing How in the world is David able to get up every day and go and face the things that he faces in light of all that's going on? You know, naturally, he's approaching age 30. He's an outlaw. He's hiding in caves and forests. He's camping out every night. He's been through a divorce from the king's daughter. Saul forced that divorce upon him. And Saul has betrayed him at least 19 times. But from a spiritual standpoint, his family is safe. His men greatly respect him. He has the prophet with him, which gives him vision. He has the only living priest with him, which carries worship with it. He has Abigail as a wife. God speaks to him through the Urim and the Thummim. And God has delivered him multiple times and even from himself. He's the Lord's anointed king and As we see here in Psalm 54, sweet psalms are born from these afflictions that he is going through. But he's weary. He's weary. And we see some chink in the armor, if that's a good way to put it, in the first Samuel. David is weary. And David's ready to run. He's ready to run away from it, which is the natural tendency we all have. You know, drama and dysfunction has become the norm. He thinks that's normal and he just wants to get away from it. And you might say that the straw that broke the camel's back is what the Ziphites do in 1 Samuel 26 where they, once again, for the second time, his own cousins, his own family, tell Saul, he's down here, come get him. But up until this point, David is holding it together with his faith in God and worship. And that's Psalm 54. David writes Psalm 54, as I mentioned last week. He writes it about the Ziphites giving him up again. His own cousins acting so ugly and betraying him so horribly. Let's read. Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me, and oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them, Selah. I mentioned last week that he refers to his own family, his own cousins as strangers. These Ziphites who are of the tribe of Judah. He refers to them as foreigners, as strangers. That means foreigners. I've told you the story before about how my grandmother McCool, anybody that was not from the Lamar County or Pickens County area, specifically Zion or Kennedy, you know, they were from off, the land of off. They were strangers. They were foreigners to her. There were so many people when I was growing up that were from off. I just wondered where that place was. She said, they're from off. David is saying, these cousins, these supposed friends and relatives, blood relatives of mine are strangers to me because of the way they're betraying me. But he says in verse 4, this is what's holding it together. Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. Here comes the worship part of it. 
I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble, and mine eye hath seen his desire upon mine enemies. See, up until this point, David has been relying on his faith in God and the worship of God. Even though he's on the run, he's an outlaw, and all of these things are taking place. And you see just a little bit of chink in the armor in 1 Samuel 26, when David, you remember, David goes in as Saul is asleep and he takes Saul's spear and the cruise of water that was by Saul's head. All of Saul's 3,000 men are asleep and his security detail is sleeping around him. And David and another brother go in there and take that out. And David goes 100, 200 yards away where he's safe, headed up into the mountains. And he cries back to them. And he says, look, I could have killed you again, just like at the cave at Injadai. I could have killed you again. And he tells Saul, he has some interaction with Saul there. And once again, Saul confesses and says, David, you know, you're better than me. Forgive me. And by the way, this is the last recorded time that Saul comes after him. Some very dark days are coming for Saul. This is the last time that Saul goes after him. But in 1 Samuel 26 and 19, David gives you a little hint about what he's thinking. That he's starting to slip away from relying on his faith and on worship. And he says this as he shouts out to the 3,000 and out to Saul. He speaks of his own kin here, the ones that have betrayed him, the Ziphites. He says, For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. If you'll think about that carefully of what's going on in the, in the mind of David, he is saying, I can no longer stay here in the inheritance of the Lord, which is what God told him to do. You remember Gad the prophet said, stay in the land of Judah. Hide out in those familiar areas. But David has now decided that because these cousins have betrayed him and turned him over to Saul, he's now saying, it looks like I need to go where they serve other gods. You think the Ziphites actually said, go, serve other gods. But David extrapolated, that's a big word, David got out of what they were doing. It must mean that I need to go somewhere else where they don't worship God. David is beginning to slip. But up until this point, he has been relying on his faith and on the worship of God. We talked primarily last week about faith. And if you notice, he says in verse 4, Behold, God is mine helper. That's his faith. You see, God is mine helper. The word helper right there means to surround. You remember, as I mentioned, that David was down there acting like a fool, like a crazy person, and at the Philistines in the gates of their city, scrabbling on the doors, and he recognized that the angel of God's presence that is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ was there with him. David saw that. He saw that God was his helper. God would surround him. That's how David is able to process all of these things. God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. His faith looked to God who was surrounding him and protecting him time and time again. You know, God can be there for you when others can't. When, when I can't get to your bedside to pray for you or to your situation to say a prayer or just be there, 
If I can't get there, if I am hindered from being there, God is there. I was thinking about Brother David Crawford this morning sitting there at home with the flu. And I know as a pastor myself, I know where he wants to be. He wants to be there with Sister Martha Starling, holding her hand, comforting her, praying for her, if, if not even saying anything, just being there. I know with a pastor's heart, that's where the pastor wants to be. But he can't be there because he is sick. There may be times when I can't be there, but God is always there, child of God. And that is the test of faith, is it not? To recognize that in whatever circumstance you're in, whatever sickness comes upon you, whatever trouble you're dealing with, that is the test of faith to recognize, well, it looks horrible and there seems to be nobody here, but God is here. I have often said to this when trying to help someone who was struggling. You know, I can't find God. I can't see God. And I'm dealing with all of these troubles that come along. I have often said in the last at least 10 years, I've often said, well, just look to your right where there seems to be nothing there and look to your left where there seems to be nothing there and just rest assured that Jesus Christ is there. And it's really even better news than that because He's not just there to the right, there to the left, omnipresent. He's also right here in your heart and your emotions and your strife and your trouble and your drama and the dysfunction. It just suppresses that. You understand, we can quench the Spirit. I've done that so many times in my life. Have you ever quenched the Spirit? You just whenever, maybe you were feeling the presence of the Lord and you thought something you shouldn't think or you, you put your own spin on something that you were looking at or dealing with and the next thing you know, it just quenched that Spirit. You know, the Spirit of God within you does not deny reality. It does not deny, well, things may be tough, things may be hard, this may be a difficult situation. The Spirit of God is not, you know, some dreamscape where you can't figure out, oh, you know, is this God, is it not? No, the Spirit of God deals with reality. This is a bad situation that David is in. It's a tough time for him to be dealing with these things. But God is with him, surrounding him, and being there for him. You know, I think about a book that was written years and years ago. They made a movie out of it. I, don't, I can't recommend the book because it's just so, parts of it are just so bizarre. The Shack, so bizarre. You know, they present God as a woman and all this type of different stuff that's in there. God appears in different ways. And Anyway, there was one part, you know, the old saying, you know, eat the banana, throw away the peel. Eat the chicken, throw away the bone. You know, so there's a lot of bone you got to throw away. There's a lot of peel you got to throw. But there was one part in there that, that struck me and it stayed with me. And it was talking about where was God when the little girl, that's the subject of that fictional book, when the little girl was assaulted and murdered. Where was God? And God finally has the God of that book, okay? <laughs> I'm really going out on a limb here. <laughs> but in that fictional book, God finally has a direct interaction with the father who was basically just hating God and angry at God because God didn't do something to stop his little girl from being hurt. And in that book, there was just one little two or three paragraphs worth that was made the whole book worth reading to me because God finally relates to the father. He says, I was there. I was there when your little girl was kidnapped and assaulted and murdered and left dead. He said, I was there. He said, I was talking to her. I was whispering to her. I was being there for her the whole time. Just because God doesn't do what we think He should do does not mean that He's not sovereign and it does not mean that He's not doing something. 
You see, David is thinking, why am I not on the throne? Why am I not where I think I should be? Why am I not where it looks like God wants me to be? And he gets ahead of himself and he begins to lose his hold on his faith and on worship. And he says, well, I guess I just need to go to some other country, to some other place and worship God in some other way. See, that's, that's the trick of, <laughs> that's a good way to put it, that's the trick of faith. Looking to God as our helper, no matter what the circumstance is. And by the way, this is going to test David in an in awful way, in a tragic way, very, very soon. Because he loses his hold, he's going to be tested in a terrible way a few chapters down, down the road as we continue. Behold, God is my helper. Verse 6, I will freely sacrifice unto him. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. That's worship. If you look over to Psalm 95, where he speaks directly of the word worship. Psalm 95. I want to read a few passages to you. This is the same writer, David, writing the psalm. He says this. And this is about worship. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great, capital G, God, and a great King above all gods, little g. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it. And His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I tell you, there's three emphasis right there about worship. He says, let us worship, let us bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's a lot of bowing down and kneeling, isn't it? The word worship right there means to go down or sink down as into a pit that is dug, or even in some places as a grave that is dug. It's not meaning put yourself in a grave and cover yourself up. No, it's talking about going down before the Lord. To pay homage to a superior by bowing low or getting on the knees with the face to the ground. <laughs> you know, Abraham and Lot both did this. Abraham, whenever the Lord came to him, the triune God comes to have lunch or dinner with Abraham. In the heat of the day, as Abraham sat there under the tree over in the book of Genesis, and the triune God comes to visit him and relate to him that Sarah, his wife, is going to have a child in the next time of the season of life. She's, she's going to have a baby, and she's, she has been in denial of that for some time. So when God comes to him there under the, under the tree, Abraham, it says, goes and bows down before God. He literally gets down on his knees and puts his face to the ground. And that is what worship means. That's the picture of worship. You know, Lot did the same thing. You say, are you kidding me, Lot? In Genesis, the 19th chapter, it says when the two angels came to Sodom and Lot, who was the puppet judge that really had no power that sat out there in the gate of the city, he, Lot, in his stupor of sin, in his ridiculous life, in his foolishness of, of living where he was living and doing the things that he was doing and failing to do the things that he should do. He recognized this is God, this is from God, and I need to bow down. And that's exactly what he did. He went to them. Now, this was during the day. People were still walking around in the city, in the gate of the city especially, because that was the place where a lot of traffic took place, a lot of commerce. And Lot goes, and it says that he bowed down. And that word means to worship. He put his knees on the ground and his face to the dirt 
before the angels of God when they came to Sodom. He still had some memory, some semblance of what it meant to worship. To go down or sink down into the pit. To pay homage to a superior. And notice that David, back in Psalm 54, notice the two things that worship consists of. This is in Psalm 54 and 6. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. Worship consists of sacrifice. The basic meaning of the word sacrifice means to kill. Sacrifice means to kill. To give up something. Ask yourself the question, what are you killing? I don't mean from a physical standpoint. But what did you kill? What did you sacrifice to get here today to worship God? One thing is very easy, sort of a no-brainer. You sacrificed your time. There's a lot of things that God's children, even out there in the world today, are doing during this time. Think about it. You have to kill, sacrifice your time to come and worship God. And what you do here and what you do on a regular basis looks so ridiculous to the natural world. Why would those people waste their time to go and hear two preachers bring a message and sing for a little while, shake hands with one another, interact with one another, hug one another, talk to one another? Why would they waste their time to do such a thing? It's because God is worthy of that. You know, God could demand all of your time. Does that strike you? And listen, when I was a kid, I hated going to church. That was time that, that I could be playing. It's time that I could be doing things that I wanted to do. And thank God, Mom would never say anything to me when I would stuff my pockets full of my little G.I. Joe figures or my little Star Wars figures. I'd stuff them full. And so that way I could get to the pew, you know, and I could sit there and pull out my little men and I could play with them, you know, right there on the pew while the preacher's up there preaching. And I'm thinking, Wembley, hush, let me get out of here. I think I was 17. I'm just kidding. I was five or six years old just trying to get through the, the day, trying to get through that waste of time. You know, that's the way, you know, we've all been drugged to church. We've all been carried along like that. And we think, what's the point? This is a waste of time. I could be playing with my G.I. Joe figures. I could be playing with my Star Wars figures. I could be working on my homework. I could be doing all of these things. But child of God, the Lord doesn't demand all of your time. He just demands some of your time. You had to kill time to get here today. You had to put it to death. That's what sacrifice means. David says, I will sacrifice freely to the Lord. I will voluntarily give up things that I think I need or that are precious to me so that I can serve God, that I can worship God. That is the epitome. That is the crux of what it means to worship. What are we giving up for God? Now, the, the opposite of that is true today. Today, people in most places go to church and they say, what can I get from God? What can He give me? What kind of entertainment can I get today? What kind of smoke and mirrors can I see? What about all of these things that can come at me and, and tantalize me and give me something that I need? That is the opposite of what uh, worship is in the Word of God. Worship is sacrifice. What do I give up for God? You think about the economy of the Old Testament worship under the Levitical law, and they had to give up precious things to God on a regular basis. You think about the Passover. They had to go pick out the best lamb. They had to figure out which one was the one without blemish. The one that was without spot. The, the cutest little lamb that was out there. And they had to kill that lamb. They had to sacrifice it. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that? I tell you, I don't think that that type of economy of, a, of worship would work today. Everybody, they'd be sued left and right by PETA and other organizations. That's not fair to the animals. You know, they're too cute. Don't kill them. You see, you had to kill something to worship God. 
You had to kill that precious little lamb of the flock, of the firstlings of the flock. The one that was the best. You say, well, that just seems so cruel. Nowhere near as cruel as what God the Father Himself had to give up. Which was the precious Lamb of God. You say, well, if only God, you know, if only He could really identify with us when we have to kill our time and we have to leave our Star Wars figures at home and our G.I. Joes at home and, and, and put down our, you know, our coloring books and all of that and pay attention to that boring old preacher for a while. Let me tell you something. God understands better than anything, anyone, what it means to sacrifice. Because He sacrificed His perfect Son. He gave up the, the holy, harmless, undefiled One so that we could have the privilege of sacrificing to Him. He's not asking you to kill your little lamb or your little dog or your little cat or your little chipmunk or your little whatever, fill in the blank, whatever you think is cute and furry and fluffy. He's not asking you to do that. He's just asking you to give up a little bit of time for Him. To bow yourself down before Him. Even if you don't do it physically, you do it spiritually Lord I'm nothing if you command all of my time then you're worthy you know that's what I often say about studying the word of God the Lord doesn't tell me or you to study the word of God 24 hours a day you know physically that's impossible right just give him a little bit of your time Give Him 15 minutes of your first fruit time, your best time, your most mentally sharp time. Give Him 30 minutes of that time and you'll learn more than what you would learn as you give Him the remnants or the leftovers of your time. We're all thinking about leftovers, aren't we? We just had Thanksgiving and everybody's thinking, oh, I don't want any more leftovers. You know, that's what we do with God. We often give Him the leftovers. We give Him what's left. Let's don't give Him what's left. Let's give Him what's first. Whatever's the best part of your time, give that to Him for just a little while and He will bless you in that. But He could demand all of your time. But He doesn't. So you see, worship consists of sacrifice. I will freely sacrifice. I won't be drugged to church with my pocket stuffed full of little playmen like Brother Tim was. I get it. We all go through that. You went through it too. Maybe you had your Barbies or whatever it might be, your dolls or whatever. When it comes time to worship God, I will freely sacrifice unto thee, and I will praise thy name. The word praise can mean to revere, to worship with extended hands, to bemoan by wringing the hands, to make confession, to give thanks. You say, which one applies here? All of those apply. We come before God to praise Him, to revere Him and worship by extending our hearts to Him and say, Lord, thank You. Lord, thank You. We bemoan our sins. It makes us kind of wring our hands. Lord, I'm sorry I did that. Lord, forgive me. We make confession to God and we give thanks to God. You see, the attitude of worship is given there is to be freely. I will freely sacrifice to Thee. Lord, I will freely praise Thy name. Freely means to offer something from a willing heart. You know, the least that we can do for God is just go to church and worship Him. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, talks about how there were those that were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. That's just our reasonable service, he says. There may be other things that we can do. There, may be other op there will be other opportunities that we can serve and worship the Lord and give glory to His name. But that's just kind of like one of those no-brainers, right? We should delight in worship. David delighted in worshiping God. Are you telling me that this outlaw who's really the king 
Betrayed 19 times by Saul. Betrayed by his own cousins, his own friends. Are you telling me that this guy could functionally out there on the run, in the woods, in the caves, that he could actually rely upon his faith in God, his helper, the one that surrounded him, and also he could worship God out there like that with those 600 men? Yes. And he did it freely. He didn't do it with gritted teeth or in the mully grubs or thinking, oh, i got to go do this. No, it's I've, I, I want to go do this. And he worshiped God freely. He said, for this is good. That, the word good is interesting. That word good means to be functional. It means to be functional. You know, David has been living in drama and dysfunction because of what's going on in the turmoil around him. But there was a place that he could go that was functional. You know what that was? It was worshiping God. Oh, if there's one place in our life that ought to be, we can have so many dysfunctional and dramatic things going on around, but let's pray to God that where we go to worship will be functional. Functional. Functional for you, functional for me. David had victory through his faith and through his worship in these times that he was on the run. And child of God, you do too. The times that you feel like you're on the run and you feel betrayed and the drama and dysfunction of this broken world continues to press upon you just like, like pressing upon wine, upon grapes in a wine press. <clears throat> pressing upon you just like two rocks grating together. You ever heard of being between a rock and a hard place? You ever feel that way? Jesus said, in me, in the world, you shall have tribulation, but in me you will have peace. The Apostle Paul said that we glory in tribulations. It doesn't mean we ask for them or want them to come. It means that we can honor God because He's with us even though the tribulations come upon us. You see, David is winning. It doesn't look like he's winning. But he's winning out there. He's riding the crest of a wave. Y'all ever seen these surfers that get up on these crests of waves and you think they're fixing to go down and they just ride that wave on out. It's amazing. It scares me to look at stuff like that. It scares me to think about waves that big. A tumultuous sea. But David is out there in the tumultuous sea of this dramatic life and being pursued, and he's riding on top of the wave because he's relying upon his faith and upon worship. But we get a little bit of a hint of his weakness. He said in 1 Samuel 26, 19, For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. And a twisted mess is about to come upon David. A twisted mess you're going to think to yourself when you see what happens in the, in the few chapters ahead, when he runs off to the land of the Philistines, you're going to say, how did he get himself in this predicament? It's because he stopped relying upon his faith and upon the worship of God. And he went to a place where they were serving false gods. And it was illegal to worship Jehovah. He stopped trusting in his helper. He was blinded by the drama and the dysfunction around him. And he stopped going to church. He stopped worshiping God and he stopped relying upon his faith. There's a line in one of the songs that we sing that goes like this. Through life and all its changing scenes and all the grief that intervenes, tis this supports my fainting heart that thou, my sanctuary, art. David left his sanctuary. David left. And he's about to get into a big mess. Let us take the lesson from David. Let us rely upon the faith that God has given us. 
our Helper, the Lord. And let us worship the Lord. Let us be functional and worship the Lord. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.